Hello, welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, I put together something that you requested a while back. Me? Yes, Nick. Oh, I feel special. (laughs) (laughs) I'm loved. So today... Uh We are going to talk about the Salem witch trial. Oh, that's great because I think Iman reco- uh, requested that oh, a while right. back. Yeah, 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 shout out to Iman, a I longtime was, listener. We I love was, her. He was, you were so excited about them, yeah, and I was like, yeah, we got to do those. Oh, so, great, cool, cool, cool. It'll be very fun, I think. Okay, okay. I mean, women get burned to death, right? No, no, hanged. Oh. All right. <laughs> oh, then yeah, it'll be a blast. No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, but let's take a second to raise a glass to our newest Patreon members before we get started. Abby B is back, baby. Courtney bumped up her pledge. Andrea joined the mafia. And so did my aunt Cappy. Thank you, everyone. We love you so much. And we are just five members away from having 100 Patreon subscribers. So if your pockets can handle throwing us five bucks a month, please consider supporting this podcast and unlocking exclusive episodes. Wow. All right. Now let's get to some witches, you know? Yeah. Okay. So this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. Also witchcraft. So if Uh any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably do a little cursing and joking. So if you're not into that, turn us off. All right, Nikki. Are you ready to hear this story? Yeah, let's freaking do it. Okay, let's get started. Witches, witches are cool. Give me a story about how witches rule. Okay. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, uh-huh. Nick actually did make a rap album at one point. Don't ever tell anyone that. That's I not true. It is true. No, it's not. With your brother? I deny that allegation. It was very cute. I love that album. Well, you were on it too. If it existed. <laughs> Allegedly, if all three Castellini Brothers albums allegedly exist, which they don't, what were they called? Level 42, Burn It For Your Friends, and something, I don't remember the third one, all alleged, not true, didn't happen. You were on some of those songs, but you weren't because they didn't exist. All I'm saying is people got a little taste. All right, so. (laughs) Oh, my witches witches flow? Yeah. You already know. Stop, stop, you're going to make me die. So uh, today we're going to talk about the Salem witch trials. I'm going to just start with the caveat yeah. that this, I was like, oh, how fun. This is like a great, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting story. I love historical crime. Right. And, you know, there's so much information about it that mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's really nice. You know, it's, it's easy. All the information is in one spot. It's a massive, massive story. <laughs> So yeah. I did my mm-hmm. best to like do this, but you know, this is a comedy podcast. I think everything is right though. <laughs> okay, good. I'll, I it's a lot because you know, some people are like experts in colonial America. I'm not. You're, of course you're not. Why would you be? I don't know. No but one I'm just is saying, expecting like, you I, to be. I, went, I, I did work very hard on this, but if I, you know, if I made mm-hmm. a little bit of mistakes here and there, just know, I think, you know. 
Just know I tried. <laughs> okay. Burner at the stake. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So, didn't happen. All right. Salem, Massachusetts. Not right? Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it happened in Oregon. It didn't. It's Salem, Massachusetts. It's a co- like an original colony. Oh, right. Right. Okay. So, Salem, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. It sits on Massachusetts Bay on the East Coast, about 16 miles from Boston. So that's where Massachusetts sits to get today. Got it. About five miles north of Salem, there used to be a place called Salem Village. It's now called Danvers, Massachusetts. And that was settled by English Puritans around 1629, 1630. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know, you know, the Mayflower came over, people came over, they settled colonies. I'm mm-hmm. not going to get super deep into that, but right, like, that's what happened, right? Yeah, vague historical context, right. blah, the Puritans blah, blah. landed. Uh-huh. Now, uh, they left England feeling like persecuted for their religion. They were trying to like separate themselves from the Anglican Anglican Church mm-hmm. and like the Catholic Church. They were trying to do their own thing, right? Yes. So they they settle in Massachusetts and I'm just going to give you a list of things that they publicly banned because I think it's going to give you a good <laughs> sense right. of like what the times were like, okay. right? All right. So they, this is a, like a partial list of stuff that they banned. Uh-huh. Gambling. Uh, for a little while, they were trying to punish adultery with death. They banned fancy clothing, living with Native Americans who were already living there, mm-hmm. smoking in public, missing church, uh, getting drunk. They hated maples, right? They what? Thought- <laughs> Maples? Maples. Like Maples. It's like oh I forgot you don't know things. It's like <laughs> <laughs> No one knows what a maypole is. Did you say is. Midsummer? Did you see Midsummer, yes. the scary horror film? So yeah, that we watched it together. That they had where they like wrap the ribbons around the pole in a dance. Uh-huh. Like to celebrate basically the summer solstice or whatever. Okay. That's a maypole. It's like it's just like an old school <laughs> thing that people used to do. Okay. They hate maples. They hate that. Okay. Fine. And they also big time hated celebrating Christmas. And uh-huh. I thought that was kind of funny. So I looked into it. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I just think it's great. All right. So the Puritans didn't really like how Christmas was celebrated by people from other sects of the religion, but not everyone who lived in the colonies were Puritans. And to be honest, those early colonists that weren't Puritans mm-hmm. loved kicking it on Christmas, mm-hmm. right? They were like really uncontrolled. <laughs> yeah. So like they started to settle the area around 1630. About 17 years later, they outright banned Christmas and they fined people for celebrating. They would do things like call the traditional mincemeat pie that people would eat idolatry in a crust. <laughs> like really just not liking it. <laughs> but... Despite mm-hmm. the bans and like, right. you know, the fines and all this kind of stuff, early colonists were impossible to control when it came to kicking it on Christmas. <laughs> the non-Puritans were rowdy AF and the winters were really long. So by December, people just wanted to bust out the pantry. Yeah, they're days. like, can we please eat some adultery in the crust, please? They really, they were like, we want to have a rager, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's get drunk. Let's <laughs> party. Stuff. Yeah. So 
It sounds like what you're saying is that the war on Christmas is really baked into the foundation of this country called America. It's <laughs> very funny, Nick. Okay. I'm hilarious. Like people would gamble, they would drink. They did this thing called with sailing, where poor people would bust <laughs> into rich people's homes and sing songs and perform these skits. Yeah. And then they would demand food and alcohol and money. Oh, that's when we should have been alive. Muriel, <laughs> that was our calling on this planet. And if they were denied, they'd start brawls and like throw rocks at the oh, house. Oh man, I wish we could do that with our podcast. Just bust in with like a Bose speaker and play it in someone's face. Uh, you're really you're really hyped up today. Okay. Yeah, it's called patreon.com slash Muriel's Murder. Oh Sign God, up. Nick, just right. Stop. If you don't, Muriel and I are going to fight. I'm not going to do this podcast. Okay. All right, okay, keep going, keep going. Uh, they also practice this thing called mumming, which is basically cross-dressing. So men would dress up like women, and women would dress up like men, or they'd all just wear costumes, and then they'd just like rove around the town, which really unsettled the Puritans. They were not into that right, at all. Right, right, okay. Like, what a weird thing, That right? sounds hella fun. And this is like a more of like a British or an English tradition, mm-hmm. But every year for a while, they would elect a lord of misrule or in Scotland, they called it the abbot of unreason. (laughs) And it was just like somebody usually of like low social status who was like for the day or the week or whatever, like put in charge of Christmas debauchery in the villages. Oh, that's kind of like Midsummer too. Doesn't she get chosen to be the princess of it all or something i don't think that's the similar thing but okay. yeah so right. the abbot of unreason would be like all right everybody's gonna party over here you know yeah right let's tear down that house right so right. you can imagine the puritans were not fans of christmas mm-hmm, <laughs> i mm-hmm. just i don't know it's not really that important <laughs> but it gives you a brief picture of what i like to think about what i think about earlier colonial history right <laughs> okay so this is just you know mm-hmm. a, uh Little picture of like what the vibe was like. Gotcha. So the quick and dirty historical context of the Salem witch trials is basically that this colony had seen some massive changes in the previous two decades, like right before the Salem witch trials. Mm -hmm. The colonies were governed in part by these English charters, which granted them permission to colonize the land. And after a few decades of Puritan rule, the English crown started to put pressure on the colony to be less like Puritan-y. They were just kind of like, you guys are, you know, not doing great, right? And in 1881, the pressure mounted heavier to like roll back all of these Puritan reforms in the Massachusetts colony. And that resulted in laws banning Christmas that they had put into place. They Mm -hmm. all got repealed, right? Yeah. I mean, they did leave one land because they felt like they were being persecuted for their religious beliefs. And now they're like, actually, now we get to have all the rules made. I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to. Yeah, I don't know. I know there's. I'm not gonna pass judgment. I it's way too long ago. I don't even understand what they're thinking. I mean, we're gonna get into yeah. this and be like, oh, that guy ran as fast as a horse. He's a devil. Like, there's a lot of things you're not gonna understand. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but <laughs> like, you know, so they start repealing these mm-hmm. laws. They say you can't do this, you can't do that. And in 1684, King Charles II revoked the Massachusetts Bay Colony's royal charter, and that was the thing that gave the colonists permission to colonize the area like for the British. Mm-hmm. So the charter was revoked in part for the colonists like violating the terms of the charter and 
basing laws on religious beliefs. So that was actually a part of the whole thing is that they didn't want that to happen. And they're starting to see it happening. Got right? it. Yeah. Then five years later in 1689, England waged a war against France in the American colonies during King William's War. So that destroyed parts of Quebec, Nova Scotia, and upstate New York, and it flooded the Massachusetts Bay colonies, particularly Salem vil Village, mm -hmm. with refugees. So all of that really strained the resources of the colonies. The war was really hard on everyone living in that area. Mm -hmm. And then in 1691, the English replaced this original Massachusetts Bay colonies royal charter with a more secular charter, things that you know, they perceived that as being an anti-religious charter, mm -hmm. you know, but the charter was just meant to kind of pull religion out of the fabric of the law and stuff like that. So, like I said, Puritans had left England because of religious persecution, and they felt like this new charter was a move to attack them once again. So around 1691, people were just feeling defensive. And on top of that, there was this massive smallpox outbreak and then a series of failed frontier wars with the native tribes that they were trying to uh, take their land. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and the general vibe in the colony was basically that these bloody wars, smallpox, religious persecution, and political infighting were all being caused by the devil. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in 1609, <sighs> not by themselves for going over there and trying to, you know, kill indigenous people and take their land. I mean, they I did not take any responsibility for that. Themselves. The thing about the devil is just, they, they're always like, oh, the devil made me do it. I always think that I've always thought that was so funny. Yeah. Okay. So in 16, <laughs> a peek into Muriel's sense of humor. I don't know. It's very dark. It's dark in there. Mm -hmm. So in 1692, Amidst all of this stuff happening in a little place called Salem Village, a bunch of super stressed out colonists collectively gave into mass hysteria and convinced themselves the town was completely overrun by witches and wizards. <laughs> now, <laughs> no one knows for sure why the whole thing started. From uh -huh. what I've read, it seems like life was a little hellish at the time with lots of violence and this like looming threat of foreign restrictions on religion. But the other thing that was also happening is there was just a ton of infighting among the villagers of Salem. The port at Salem Town had created this new wealthy merchant class of people. Mm. So basically like five miles out to the coast, there's just this kind of metropolitan hub where all of this money and uh -huh. and stuff is coming through the port. So there's haves and haves nots. Right. That really started to aggravate any sort of like already tense relationships between families. Mm -hmm. And in this disruption of the power structure, these two clans fought for control over the village and the church. So out of all of this kind of crazy chaos, and the other thing that was happening too, I guess, is that some of these newly rich people didn't feel like, you know, participating as much in the community and like the community governments governance. So like mm -hmm. up until this point, the tradition was like the most prominent families did a lot of like the essential ruling over the colony. People made decisions and you <laughs> yeah, know, did yeah, all this yeah. kind of stuff. They were like, that was 
part of it, right. right? But now these rich people have more prominence, but they're less interested in Yeah, they're like, things. I'm newly rich. I'm not going to go have more responsibilities <laughs> now. I'm trying to kick it, dude. Don't ask me to, like, vote on a bill. Right. So I think that there's, like, a little bit of that going on. So anyway, mm-hmm. this whole thing disrupts the power structure, and these two clans emerge. One is the Putnams and one is the Porters. And everyone in Salem Village had an opinion about which family they thought should be leading the direction of Salem, right? Yeah, I don't know. That's hilarious. <laughs> I don't know. Just, I don't know. It sounds like every like petty beef, like in a comedy club or a theater or like a yeah, church or yeah, something. Yeah. Okay, so up until this point, Witch hunting was really big in Europe, right? It had been since about 1300, but times were changing and the witch hunting thing was kind of winding down overseas. And although England had designated witchcraft as a crime punishable by death, Mm -hmm. there wasn't really much controversy about it in the American colonies until 1688. Okay, so this is just a handful of years before the Salem witch trials. Yeah. So... There was this Irish washerwoman in Boston named Goody Glover. And Goody Glover got into a fight with some 13-year-old girl about something dumb, right? Just something (laughs) random. Okay. So they get in an argument. Uh And afterwards, the girl starts acting totally whacked out. She's contorting her body. She's screaming. (sighs) She's running around the house. Mm -hmm. She's throwing up. That's scary. Right? And soon after this happens, her three younger siblings start doing the same thing. Hell no. So Goody Glover was arrested and tried for witchcraft. Yeah. Now, during her trial, there was this incredibly popular Puritan clergyman and writer named Reverend Cotton Mather. He's done a lot of stuff. That's interesting that I'm not going to talk about. Okay, <laughs> Just know. His name is, is suffice it to say, Cotton Mather sounds like the most like I'm in charge back then kind of name of all time. Yeah, he was he, he was really like large and in charge, right? Okay. And he decided to get involved in this trial. So he personally interviewed Goody Glover twice in an attempt to get her to confess. He says, listen, I'm on your side. Yeah. We're going to help you. You just need to confess, right? But Goody Glover stays consistent. She's not a witch, right? Her refusal to admit she was a witch clearly demonstrated that she was a witch. (laughs) There's the logic. Right? So she was convicted and hung for being a witch. Now, after his experience with Goody Glover, Cotton Mather decided to invite these afflicted children into his home to study them. And that year, Cotton Mather published his work, memorable providences relating to witchcrafts and possessions and that detailed all of the cursed children's symptoms right so they didn't even die and they hung her no, they no. were just contorting She's being a witch. she was just they were just break dancing and they were like witchcraft is punishable by death okay. it doesn't matter it's not about killing even if you just made a bunch of flowers bloom and stuff it's not about it's about witchcraft it's not okay. about who dies and what it's anything you do right <laughs> all right anyways mm-hmm. this book Huge hit. <laughs> Bestseller. Everyone's got yeah. a copy in their library. They're like reading it. Mm-hmm. They're reading the symptoms. They're being like, now we understand what happens when witches attack children. This is what it looks like. Great, great, great. Mm-hmm. So Cotton Mather, among many things, was this famous and influential minister for the Old North Church in Boston. And that's like the big New England Puritan church of the time. Mm-hmm. 
And he sort of generally believed and preached that God himself intervened to help establish the Massachusetts colony because before they landed there, before the Puritans got there, this was all the devil's territory. So right. in a way, the mm-hmm. colonists were mm-hmm. the like a chosen people in this constant battle against Satan. So that's how right. he saw the colonies, right. right? And this recent Boston witch case got him hella excited. <laughs> he was basically like, okay, you yeah. know, this is a validation. Mm-hmm. Like 100% witches are real. They cast spells on children. They haunt people and shapeshift. Right, mm-hmm. we live in the devil's land, so we got to be on the lookout for anything resembling a witch. And if you're against witch hunting, you're probably a witch, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's kind of disseminated into the like, you know, colony consciousness, that's right? Just yeah, a, a backbeat of like what people are thinking, right? Got it. Okay, so in 1688, the same year this supposed witch is executed in Boston. The head of one of the two most influential families in Salem Village makes a power move, okay? Patriarch John Putnam reaches out to a man named Samuel Paris and asks him to become the new preacher for the Salem Church. So that's a big deal. He makes a move. He's like, I'm going to install my own preacher, right? Samuel Paris was a sugar plantation owner who made his bones in Barbados, and he had moved to Boston in 1680 to try to get some business off the ground with his plantation money. Eventually, he got tired of whatever he was doing in Boston. And in 1686, he started casually filling in for absent preachers. So eventually, he meets John Putnam, and he's like, yes, I want to be your preacher. They talk it out, and he was hired to be, you know, Salem Village's new guy. Yeah. So he moves over to Salem Village with a copy of Cotton Mather's book on witches in his library. He's fully on board. With him, he took his wife, Elizabeth, his young son and daughter, Thomas and Betty, his niece, Abigail Williams, and his two slaves from Barbados, a South American woman named Tatuba and her husband, John. Unfortunately, Samuel Paris wasn't a good fit for the congregation. The village immediately didn't like his style. And in 1691, just two years after he'd been hired, they started like forgetting to pay his salary. So <laughs> That is too funny, man. I'm sorry. Spiteful, man. No, I'm sorry. I, your grandma will talk trash about some different uh, priest. She's like, I don't like him. Mm-mm. And the Unitarian Church, everybody's got opinions. They right, mean. and they're all about like peace and love and like every religion is like mm-hmm. a part of the tapestry of spirituality and yet like if someone is like has the wrong vibe, they're like, they should not be in our presence. <laughs> I don't want them talking to me and about how Buddhism is just like Christianity. They'll be hating on their ministers for like five, like five years, yeah. you know? Remember her? <laughs> <laughs> so by the fall of 1691... Right when winter's approaching in this mm. really drastic way, the town decides to refuse to implement the tax needed to pay Paris's salary and his firewood for the winter, which seems kind of dumb. No, but that's but huge. It's huge. It's hugely important. So, <laughs> in retaliation, Samuel Paris's sermons became really fixated 
on an evil conspiracy within the town against the church Mm -hmm. that Satan was taking root in Salem Village. Uh, If you guys don't like me, the devil must be at work. Right. And so the witching begins. Hmm. Samuel Paris and his family kind of dig their claws in and they hold on through the winter. And in February 1692, you know, he's still here hanging on to this preaching gig in Salem. Does he still have the support of the Putnams? I believe so. At this point, he still has the support of the Putnams, but it's just not going well for Mm -hmm. him. That year, there was also an absolutely long and brutal winter. Everyone was cooped up inside for months, kind of climbing up the walls, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in February, Samuel Paris's nine-year-old daughter, Betty, started acting real crazy. Ooh. Betty ran around the house at full speed, running into furniture, hiding, contorting, having seizures, vomiting, oh. and complaining about her skin being like pricked and poked and pinched, right? Yeah. Were well, you re- you were kind of like that, right? Don't ever. You were though. You used to run into walls and I give yourself. I did not have. I mean, no. I used to run into walls. Give yourself black kid. eyes and stuff. I was like two. I know, right? Doing like <laughs> doing the robot and stuff. I mean, kids are weird, but definitely I was not having seizures and throwing up. Okay. So, you know, Samuel Paris is freaked out. He calls a doctor to the house who examines Betty and comes to the conclusion that she was physically fine, but her symptoms were exactly like the bewitched children Cotton Mather studied a few years prior. Mm-hmm. So logically, her symptoms could be caused by only one thing, a witchcraft. <laughs> now, the first suspect was Samuel Paris's slave, Tituba. There were some rumors that went around that she would tell Betty and her cousin Abigail stories based on folklore from her home country that might have sounded a little witchy. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably like most of the early people accused, she was just an easy target. Sure. She had she didn't have a lot of social capital. A lot of the people that were accused in the beginning were people who no one would like stand up for basically. Right. Cause yeah, I mean, it's just like you pick on someone who can't defend themselves with like maybe the outside chance that you're going to scare off whoever is really doing the witching. If there are even witches to begin with. (laughs) All right. So as Betty Paris continues to act wild AF, Mm -hmm. other girls from the Putnam clan joined in. 11-year-old Ann Putnam Jr., so that's John Putnam's daughter, who is John Putnam's granddaughter Uh and Thomas Putnam's daughter, okay? The Putnams are like, there's a bunch of Putnams. It doesn't really matter. Okay. (laughs) There's two Thomases and one John Putnam, and they're all kind of super influential. Okay, right. And John is the dad. He's He's like the 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 oldest one. And then it's it's like John Thomas Thomas. (laughs) <laughs> okay it's all super confusing all you have to know is Putnam uh-huh. right Putnam yeah is the most important thing. yeah I wouldn't have yeah that makes sense okay great I just am <laughs> reading this and being like does this make any sense all right great <laughs> so Ann Putnam Jr. also started exhibiting crazy symptoms along with a 17 year old servant from the Putnam house and Ann Putnam's best friend Mary so these three girls mm. from the family who had initially brought in this unpopular preacher, Mm -hmm. along with the unpopular preacher's daughter, 
formed the foundation for the witch hunt. Oh my God. Hold on. Also, are we just sliding in that daughters used to be called junior yeah. back in the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't. I've I never know known. Either. I didn't. I've never known a woman with the junior. Honestly, this is so confusing to read because like, <laughs> yeah, Anne Putnam yeah. Junior. Guess what her mom's name? Anne Putnam Senior. <laughs> and then there's two Thomases and a John. <laughs> it's just like okay, Putnam people, right? We're not doing science here. We're yeah. just doing kind of stories. Okay. <laughs> so, like I said, these girls yeah. that are all young. You know, I think in the Crucible, a lot of them were per- portrayed as being like more like teenagers mm-hmm. in the play, which I actually have never seen. But oh, I didn't even know you were talking about a play. I just agreed. Like uh, I was just like moronically being positive. Okay, like, great. Mm-hmm. Well, there's oh, a the really Crucible. famous play mm-hmm. called The Crucible. Okay, and I think they were portrayed more as teenagers. But in reality, most of the accusers were like between nine and eleven years old. So you're talking about a group of like little girls right who are the basis of the accusation well it same sounded like the that was true for the original one too when the irish lady cursed them supposedly or whatever those are all little little kids kids, too right but regardless the town was there for it right (laughs) yeah winter's boring it's cold (laughs) and all of a sudden now yeah all eyes are on this Thing that's happening the soap opera of these afflicted girls yeah you know as time goes on a couple weeks later they show no signs of getting better right and a helpful neighbor of the paris family tried to kind of help the preacher's daughter out by working with tatuba on a solution so she tells tatuba about a way to create some like good magic to try to point out who the witch is. It's something that she learned and she wants to like pass it on to Tituba. So she says, what you need to do. This sounds like a trap. (laughs) She basically says, what you need to do is get some of nine-year-old Betty Paris's urine and bake it into a cake. Okay. (laughs) This is the plan. (laughs) It's something she heard of like in her Uh village somewhere else. Okay. So on February 25th, 1692, Tatuba baked a rye cake with Betty's urine inside. And the plan was to feed it to a dog, mm-hmm. and then presumably the dog would name the witch. Now, as you can imagine, yeah. this backfired on Tatuba spectacularly. Yeah, well, and, she was set up to fail. And people saw the dog eating the urine cake is a clear sign that Tatuba was probably the witch. So Reverend Samuel Paris was furious about the cake and made a big deal about it. He's like, what are you doing in my house? Why is this happening? And there's a lot of pressure, mounting pressure on these like nine and 11 year old girls to name the witch, right? So after this big hubbub, the girls named Tituba. Typical, Tituba's the witch, right? And as the juicy rumor of a local witch targeting children circulated and people found out about the urine cake thing more girls joined the exciting world of the afflicted bringing the total number of girls being supposedly tormented by witches to seven. Oh man that's just like the social media thing where kids on tiktok start taking on like people's uh whatever they see on tiktok yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. you know you know what i'm there, talking about there was right one about like ticks and oh like yeah. people who have the thing where you curse too much Tourette's, Tourette's yeah. and then they watch Tourette's 
TikToks and then they have it. Right. So this is just an early version of that. I mean, you can say that. Nobody knows what happened. We're yeah, talking I'm, about something that happened like hundreds of years I'm ago. I'm just literally saying that on the outside chance that it's remotely funny. Uh, oh, it is funny. <laughs> it's like TikTok. I mean, I thought Thanks. you were trying to relate it to life or something. I mean, I was, but it, with hopefully some sort of comedic effect. This is all I've got, you know? That's it. You're funny. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Okay, so now we've got seven girls uh-huh. who are all like, oh, I'm afflicted too. Me sure. too, me too. It's the TikTok of the time. Right. By now, accusations were also escalating. Mm-hmm. To everyone's horror, according to the girls, Tatuba wasn't the only witch. The girls started saying, actually, witches had infiltrated the town. The girls claimed to have seen packs of witches lying through the winter mists on wooden poles all over Salem. So now it's gone from one witch to a lot of sick girls and then like tons of witches. There's a gaggle of witches. Right. Yeah. So sometime between February 25th and the 29th, warrants were issued for Tatuba along with two other women the girls accused, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Mm Mm-hmm. Were those like white settler ladies? They were, but they all kind of followed the same pattern of being social outcasts. Mm -hmm. Like Sarah Good was homeless. She and her husband had lost everything to pay off like her debt for creditors. Mm -hmm. And she was known to beg neighbors for food and shelter. But if you didn't give her food and shelter, she would like scream at you and curse you out. So she's kind of like a bane on the town, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so little kids are like, she's a witch. And Sarah Osborne, by all accounts, was just basically old and cranky and hadn't gone to church in a year. (laughs) So both of the women were just like, you know, on the fringes. So these are just like little bully girls. I'm not mean girls. That. You're or saying it, but yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it, whatever's happening, they could be possessed by witches. We don't know. Okay, right? that's true. So the Putnam family were the ones who formally brought complaints against these three women. Their interrogations were held on March 1st at the Ingersoll's Tavern. But turns out, from all the surrounding areas and the town, hundreds of people showed up for these interrogations. So they moved the whole thing to this big meeting house in Salem Village. There, the girls did their crazy contortions and ran around this meeting house, testifying that their fits had started when the three women appeared to them in ghost form a few weeks earlier. Mm. (sighs) So with this coming out, other people start to step out of the crowd and they come forward to tell everyone yeah. there about like their encounters with these witches so they said oh no. you know i was visited by sarah and then when she came by the milk and the butter in my house all went bad <laughs> and then another person was like oh the other sarah came to my house sarah osborne and then when she left my cow gave birth to a deformed calf. So they're starting to say that, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And when the women were questioned, the questions were mostly like, are you a witch? Mm -hmm. Do you talk to Satan? If you're not a witch, how do you explain these girls' (laughs) wacky behavior, right? And like none of those answers were really satisfying for anybody. They were like, no, no, I don't know. Right. And they were like, well, that's what a witch would say, right? Of course. But regardless... This may not have spiraled the way that it did. It might have fizzled out, except for the Reverend Samuel Paris was so upset about this urine cake and everything going on that he beat Tatuba into confessing. Mm. 
So Tituba had initially denied everything, but after all of this like public questioning and accusation and this physical abuse, she changed her story. Well, yeah, it might actually benefit her at this point because saying no clearly is not working. That's part of it, for right. sure. So she was like, look, I'm not a witch, but I just remembered this guy. This guy came down from Boston to talk to me. And he sometimes appeared as a dog or a giant pig or a rat. And thinking on it now, he was probably the devil. Mm-hmm. Tatuba said that this guy asked her to sign a book and do his bidding. And she ran off for help. But the man from Boston stopped her and made her sign the book. So actually, thinking on it, she was probably a witch now. And not only that, but the other accused ladies, she said, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne were definitely witches too because she saw them flying around the town on wooden poles. There you go. So drop the mic. Yeah. You've got our witches. Mm-hmm. But now the problem was that even though all three accused women were now chained up in the dungeon below the jail, the curses seemed to be spreading. The girls didn't get better. In fact, they seemed to be getting worse. And with this escalation of black magic came fresh accusations. So, like, all of this crazy stuff started happening. Reverend Samuel Paris went to go preach in this nearby town called Beverly. And he's, like, at the pulpit saying his sermon. And he's super unnerved to find himself constantly interrupted by women in that congregation crying out and yelping like they were being stuck by pins. So he's doing a sermon and people are like, oh, oh, like that. Like that I, is, that's scary. That's freaky. Yeah. Cause it's that whatever's happening is spreading across to like yeah. all of these you know, neighboring communities. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the girls are escalating stuff too. Like Ann Putnam Jr. was in a service that Paris was doing and the whole town is there packed in the church and she looks up at the ceiling in this trance and she starts screaming Look where good wife Cloyce sits on the beam, suckling her yellow bird between her fingers, right? She's seeing this like image of this woman in the town who's like a good God-fearing woman, yeah. who's, like, maybe in her 50s, I think, uh-huh. suckling a bird, which I believe <laughs> is like nursing, like with your boob. So uh, anyway. Yeah, or, or I thought if you're suckling a bird, oh yeah, that means, I'm just not sure which way the... Uh, Who's on whose boob in a, in a suckling type scenario? I think the bird is on the lady's boob. Regardless, yeah. this is kind of what they talk about is that witches can visit people as specters, which are essentially like astral projections of themselves, yeah. right? So they can torment people by like communicating as a ghost sort of. Yeah, they're like holograms, things, you right? know? So obviously in the middle of church, this freaks everybody out. They're like the witches in the church, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Based on new accusations, the locals then rounded up more women, plus a four-year-old girl. The Sarah Cloyce and Putnam Jr. screamed about in church was an older woman with two well-respected sisters named Mary Eastie and Rebecca Nurse. Rebecca Nurse was 71, partially deaf, and this really popular and very religious member of the Puritan community. Mm -hmm. So this was now spreading away from people who are on the outskirts and now targeting specific people in the community. And we'll talk about this later. Nothing is like 
you know, for sure, for sure, nobody knows. But a lot of these families that were targeted, especially once early on, on were people who sided with the Porters over the Putnams. Oh, so man. So this family yeah. had traditionally sided with the Porters over the Putnams. Right. And so the first people of social standing that were starting to get accused by these girls were ones that weren't supporters of the Putnam family. Right. So these older, socially respectable sisters were rounded up and thrown in jail along with Sarah Good, the homeless woman, mm. her daughter Dorcas. So <sighs> the girls had accused four-year-old Dorcas of appearing to them as a ghost and biting them. Four years old. Yes. So Dorcas was interviewed right and as small children do she just sort of went along with whatever stories people were telling her like mm-hmm. if she says do you know satan she's like right? yeah <laughs> right of course yeah right? yeah so of course in this interview dorcas admitted to being a witch and implicated her mother so she was chained up alongside her mother for months until her mother was eventually pulled out of jail and publicly executed oh, during the tail end of the Salem. Jesus. Trial. Is that the where the word dork came from? Like if you're a dork, then you're like a weird little kid. Like Dorcas. From this particular Yeah, story? her name is Dorcas. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that people are thinking she's a dork for saying she was a witch. I know that, but then like the next time a little Dorcas kid was, was weird, you're like, oh, name. you're oh, there's a dork. <laughs> there's other people in the story. Dorcas. There's more Dorcases? It used to be a po- popular name. And I guess now because of, you know. Right, because teasing. there was probably one Dorcas eventually who's kind of, <laughs> who was a little bit dweeby. And they were like, oh, don't be a dork. And then they were like, oh, can't okay. name my kid that. Well, this tragic figure of four-year-old Dorcas was not the origin of the word dork. But yeah. maybe that happened later. It's- <laughs> All right. At this point, mm-hmm. the possessed girls were getting amazing at exhibiting symptoms and they were all pretty coordinated. Mm -hmm. They would have bouts of amnesia. They wouldn't be able to speak. They would be wild eyed and crazy. Like they were able to just do, you know, have these seizures, do all of this crazy stuff. Yeah. And the jail or jails were being filled with witches. Now, at this point, some of the accused witches started to realize confession was a way to get out of their situation. Deliverance Hobbs was among the first to confess to being a witch. Deliverance was about 50 years old, and she was the mother of a girl called Abigail Hobbs, who had this reputation for being a really bad kid. From what I've read, she was just really wild and didn't really follow the rules. And she used to do this joke where she sprinkled water on her mother and pretended to baptize her, which her mother hated. (laughs) So Abigail Hobbs had... doesn't seem like that bad of a kid thing to do. Abigail Hobbs had already been arrested for being a witch, so Mm. she was already in jail. But when she got arrested, she had confessed and accused both of her parents of being witches. So now all three of the Hobbs family were in jail. In fact... Abigail Hobbs, just as a side note, accused tons of other people as witches. And she really enthusiastically participated in the trials once they started just testifying anytime she would ask. Be like, oh yeah, they're a witch, whatever. So Deliverance Hobbs decides to confess. And she says, yes, I turned into a ghost and I pinched three of the afflicted girls at the devil's request. And then I flew on a wooden pole to a field for a witch's party with the devil, right? 
So this is kind of what they're saying. They're like, yes, 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 I'm a witch. Now, mm-hmm. this is working, right? This is keeping them sort of safe. But unfortunately, those who confessed were also forced to name more witches. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the jails were critically overcrowded <laughs> with witches and the situation was spiraling out of control. That's not funny, but why is that funny? It's just wild, man. It's just a wild ass story. Yeah. I mean, it's like so long ago, you know, there's a lot of like academic, obviously like research about what was happening in the colonies. And there's a lot of stuff we do know, but there's also a lot of stuff we don't know. Yeah. You know? This is just wild. It's I mean, was like there a- any speculation that the Putnams and the parishes or whatever their names are, put their kids up to this, like start acting bad so that they'll, so everyone will believe you're possessed. And then we can use that to our advantage to stay in power. There's, Nothing but speculation. Like nobody has ever uh-huh. admitted to anything like that. It just so happens that the Putnams put this unpopular preacher on the pulpit. And then all of a sudden when they don't want to pay him, he's like, the town is full of the devil. Yeah. My and daughter and her best friend. And my daughter and her like best friend and her cousin yeah. are now being afflicted and the guy who put me in charge his family and her yeah, you know yeah. his daughter and her best friends are getting afflicted. Yeah. I mean there is something about that where like, you know, if it stinks what how does it look? If you if you uh smelt it you dealt it. Yeah, something like that. Whoever you know, like, smelt it dealt it. If it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. It farted, yeah. So anyway, all of this stuff is kind of spiraling out of control and the English appointed governor of the Massachusetts colony, Sir William Phipps landed in Boston in May of 1962. Now, this is kind of not related to anything. He was just on his way back from England to the colonies to check things out. Mm -hmm. And he lands in 1692 with this new English charter that voided the English law about colonies not being able to self-govern, right? So good news for the Puritans. That's awesome for them. So he comes in and he's supposed to kind of help them set up this new judicial system in the fall of 1692. But after he lands in Boston, he starts hearing about all the fuckery going on in Salem Village, right? So he looks at what's going on and hears about this escalation of what's happening. And he decides we can't wait until the fall. So we're going to set up a special court. And this court was called the Court of Oyer and Terminer to preside over the Salem witch trials. So he appointed like a, I think it was a seven judge panel, like a, like five to seven judge panel, depending on what I was reading. Mm-hmm. I believe it's seven judges and then five is a quorum or something like that. <laughs> anyway, there's lots of things you read them and you're like, is it five or seven? Will somebody just say it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, it's a quorum. So anyway, he, he has this multiple judge panel that he puts together to preside over the trials. Um, three of those judges had close personal ties to, hey, there's a witch, Cotton Mather, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the chief justice that Governor Phipps appointed was this fierce believer in spectral evidence, which basically is something mm-hmm. that Cotton Mather was really into. It's, it's essentially that Specter evidence? Spectral evidence. Spectral evidence. So the idea is that if you claim and can describe being attacked by some sort of witch ghost, mm-hmm. it's 
that should be able to be like entered as evidence. Yeah, that's it's evidence. Like, it's evidence as much as anything else, like eyewitness testimony, mm-hmm. right? Also, this guy had no legal experience or training, and his name was William Stodden. This man, William Stodden, would act in the Salem witch trials as chief justice and prosecutor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so basically between this inexperienced chief justice and then also Cotton Mather's influence over half of the other judges on the court, the court decided to really do some out-of-the-box legal stuff. <laughs> so the judges fortified their court with the guidance of ministers who also had no legal training or education. They then elected to accept all kinds of evidence that normally wouldn't be accepted in a court of law. They admitted all confessions, and spectral evidence, right? Anyone who said they saw something witchy was to believe to be believed. Mm-hmm. They would allow touching tests. So touching tests are if somebody like one of these girls was on the stand and she started having a fit, like a seizure or she was contorting or screaming or having a hallucination, then the justices, the judges would go and force the accused witch to touch the girl. And if the witch touched the girl and she stopped having the fit, that means the witch was the one casting the spell. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I mean, they're literally just inventing whatever logic they want in every scenario. Right. And they also... Eat the pea cake. (laughs) Touch the child. They also examined um, the accused witch's bodies for moles because I guess usually people with moles were witches because that's a sign that the devil is like drinking your blood. Oh, right. Like the mole on the tip of the nose or whatever in uh, the Disney movies or something. Yeah. That I mean, just any mole, thing. like a mole, like on your body, right? Yeah, like I get it. But I'm just saying that's like a trademark of a witch. It's like a big hairy mole. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, I'm just thinking about cartoon logic here. <laughs> they also allowed gossip and hearsay to be... Uh, entered as evidence <laughs> and also mm-hmm. accused witches had no right to legal counsel they could not have anyone testify on their behalf and they weren't allowed to appeal any decisions made by the court the only thing that witches were allowed to do was speak on their own behalf submit their own evidence that apparently they'd collect while they were chained up in a basement mm. and cross-examine their accusers themselves. Although these rights were actually doled out mainly based on social status within the community. So not everybody got the chance to even talk. Sure. So the first accused witch to stand trial was a woman named Bridget Bishop. For the average Puritan, Bridget Bishop was for sure probably a witch. It looked like, you know, this trial was really starting off with a softball. Uh So Bridget was in her 60s and she had been married three times and had no children. Her two previous husbands had died. And she lived a super flamboyant lifestyle for the times. Mm. So that meant like she was often seen publicly fighting with her multiple husbands. Um, She would have these late night parties at her house that were like super fun. She liked getting drunk and playing shovelboard. So just as a side note, yeah. this is like a controversial thing in the colonies. Yeah. <laughs> so like basically old school shuffleboard, you know, have you ever played that where you like take the little, you know, handles and you hit a puck back and forth. On I've the never table? played it, but it's like the thing they do on like ships, right? On cruises or whatever. Yeah. Isn't that like 
that's what I think of, and well, it looks a, fun as hell. And I think I'd be really good. Well, at it's it. also similar. There's like stuff you do in bars. I can't remember what that thing is called, but like when you hit the pop. Oh yeah, yeah, that's so fun. Whatever yeah. that's called, that's called uh, shuffleboard. <laughs> I Why can't are you remember interrupting what it's called. Me to not help I'm not interrupting <laughs> you. You're the one who didn't remember what it was called. I don't remember what it's called either. Okay, you're going on your thing about shuffleboard. <laughs> so. Basically, like the old school way people used mm-hmm. to play it is you'd sit on a tabletop, put sawdust on the tabletop, and you'd flick coins. So you would flick mm. your coin, and the other person would try to flick a coin to knock your yeah. coin off the table. And you're trying to get to the edge of the other side right. of the table. So, so fun. Can, so fun. So that's like the game, right? Okay. Very controversial because obviously it's probably the work of the devil. Okay. <laughs> So fundamentally, you can say like when people were playing like this little tabletop version of shuffleboard that, you know, they would get drunk and bet money like that all did happen. So like, of course, the Puritans were like not pumped about that. Uh But according to sportsknowhow.com, basically the main question was whether the game was skill or of chance, whether it was a game of skill or of chance. Yeah, yeah. So the idea was that if back then they believed like hitting the coins, knocking each other's coins off the table was strictly chance. And therefore it was gambling and the devil's doing. Mm. But if it happened to be a skill, then it was cool. Right? So back in the 1600s, it was still considered chance. Like they literally thought no one is skilled enough to (laughs) knock a coin off a table. But like way later in like, I think 1840 or something, they, stopped the ban on shuffleboard because they said oh no 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 we can demonstrably prove yeah. it's a game of skill some people are good at throwing the <laughs> coin and some people are bad at i just it. thought that was really funny that's hilarious. so back then they were like devil's game right okay okay but she loved it she loved it she played it she was the bar mistress at two taverns in the town and she just didn't really gel with the puritan lifestyle right? so sorry muriel what is a bar mistress i think it's just like a bartender but oh. she, she, I don't think women could own the bars, but she mm-hmm. definitely worked the bars. People in the village felt that her very presence in Salem Village was tearing apart the social fabric mm. of the town. <laughs> <laughs> like she had the audacity to wear a fancy outfit, right? They had outlawed wearing fancy clothes. Mm. And most of the time she would prance around town wearing a black cap and a dress with a red top to it. And then like rainbow colored embroidery, which was like way too fancy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and still she, pretty fancy for today's standards, to be honest. She also used to bring like lacy undergarments to the dye house where people would get clothing dyed. Uh-huh. And she would bring them in to be colored, which totally scandalized <gasps> the dye house. Oh, again. she's like, I want these purple. Or yeah, whatever. like her purple underwear. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and for her part. Bridget was no stranger to being called a witch, right? She had been accused of being a witch back in 1680. <laughs> okay? And back then, she was clear. Just, yeah. you know, she they said, well, basically, she's just an eccentric human. She's not a witch, <laughs> okay. right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So now she's like, blah, blah, blah. They're accusing me again. So on June 2nd, 1692, Bridget's trial began. And people from the village came out of the woodwork to pile on accusations. A field hand testified that he saw a ghost that looked like Bishop steal some eggs 
and then turn into a cat. <laughs> Two confessed witches, Deliverance Hobbs and Mary Warren, both testified that Bishop was a fellow witch and they had done like witchy things together. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people testified that Bishop had haunted them when they were sleeping. And a lot of villagers also testified that they came into court and said, listen, I have had a string of bad luck recently and I'm pretty sure Bishop caused it, right? Yeah, yeah. Everyone's just hating on like whatever their problems are. Oh, my milk went sour. It must be what's her name's fault. Yeah, it's just like the devil did it. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So after all this, Bishop was convicted and she was hung on Gallows Hill Damn. right outside of town on June 10th, just eight days later. So after they hang Bridget Bishop, the town gets a little bit freaked out, right? Accusations briefly stop coming in. One of the non-Cotton Mather affiliated judges resigned from the court completely in horror at the insane lack of legitimate legal proceedings. Yeah. And in fact, at this point, Cotton Mather wrote a letter to the court himself requesting that they stop admitting spectral evidence at the trial. Mm. But at this point, the wheels were in motion and the letter was basically ignored. I guess from what I've read, Cotton Mather sent a letter saying, from what I've heard, I think that you need to stop admitting spectral evidence, which is like all the evidence that they had. Right. But continue to prosecute these witches as quickly as you can. So he's not saying there's no witches. He's just Mm -hmm. saying, don't admit this as evidence. So they basically took the speed up the trial part of the letter, but they didn't take the don't admit the crazy town evidence part of the letter. And what you're implying is that everyone was like, yeah, there's a witch, there's a witch. They're like, all right, I guess we'll kill her. And then they do that. And then everyone's like, ooh. For a second. Whoa. Yeah. There she is. Now she's dead. We did that. Right. Like there's a second. But time marches on and they continue Mm -hmm. and the next major figure to be executed was rebecca nurse right remember she's the 71 year old very well loved person in the community she's one of those three sisters that we talked about earlier yeah that supported the porters over the putnams right so all those women the three sisters were originally born into the topsfield family who were very vocal about which clan they thought that should be running the Salem village. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely the Porter family. Mm -hmm. And the Topsfield family actually had pretty public beef with all the powerful Putnam clans. So they knew that those two people were not into each other. Yeah. All three sisters were accused of being witches by Anne Putnam Jr. and her mother, Anne Putnam Sr. So they're the ones that brought the charges against the three sisters. Mm -hmm. At Rebecca Nurse's trial, Anne Putnam Sr. said Rebecca Nurse tried to force her to sign the devil's book and pinched her when she refused. But the biggest piece of evidence against Rebecca Nurse was that she yelled at a guy for letting his pig root around her garden and then a couple days later, the guy died. So they were like, okay, well. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing that was going on during Rebecca Nurse's trial is that every time Rebecca Nurse made like a gesture with her hands or whatever, the girls, the accusing girls, uh-huh. would fall on the ground screaming and rolling around <laughs> on the ground. So it's like every time she moved, they were like, ah, you know. Yeah. And after her trial, the jury deliberated, and to the relief of most of the town, 
they found Rebecca Nurse not guilty. Oh, now everyone's relieved? Right. I mean, they didn't want it really to happen, even though they kind of were making it happen. It's very complicated, Right. right? We've seen this in other stories, too, similar dynamics. But the problem is, is that Chief Justice William Stoughton was really out for witches, right? So he forced the jury to go back and re-deliberate. And after the second round of deliberations, Rebecca Nurse was found guilty of being a witch. So her family, her influential family, actually appealed to the governor, to Governor Phipps, who granted Nurse a pardon. But as soon as the pardon was announced, the girls who accused her fell into the worst fits that anyone had ever seen. They were just screaming and writhing on the ground and running around and contorting. And so they were like, okay, this is obviously rock solid proof that Rebecca Nurse is a witch. Okay. Are we just feeling like these little girls are lying and love the attention and are being put up to it and manipulated into perpetrating this? I think you just have to like let the story wash over you. I don't think that you can just, you know, feel what happened. That's more important than trying to figure out exactly how, because it's wild. I mean, the little girls were doing something, right? Yeah. But the whole town yeah. was going off of that. Right. You know, and they were all saying, watch those girls, and she spoiled my milk. And I saw her turn into a cat. Right. And she haunted me in my dreams. And right? she made that old pig farmer die. She made the pig guy die. Right. So the girls collapsing into fits is seen as this confirmation of Rebecca Nurse's guilt. So she was resentenced to death on June 30th. And then on July 19th, Rebecca Nurse was hung on Gallows Hill along with five other convicted witches, including the homeless villager with the four-year-old daughter, Sarah Good. What about Dorcas? Did she live? Dorcas is still in the prison Uh and she stayed in the prison. A minister tried to get Sarah Good to confess to being a witch while she was on the gallows, like about to be hung. And she straight up told him, this is a quote from her, Mm. you are a liar. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. Hell yeah. And then they hung her. Yeah. And apparently, according to my source, that guy actually died like a couple days, like a little while later of an internal hemorrhage. So they were Oh, so he did drink some blood. They were like, oh, she's definitely a witch (laughs) for that. You know. Which is dumb because listen, the town was like, oh, she's definitely a witch. But what this woman said is if you kill me, God will make you. Yeah, right choke on your own blood and then he choked on his own blood and they're like oh yeah then she's definitely a witch and they're like wait that's not what she Sarah Good didn't say that you know what I'm saying yeah that's hilarious no it's okay maybe I'm just, not hilarious it's <laughs> it's not ha ha hilarious it's like uh, it's you know, anything they do they just go oh you're a witch I know right yeah that's like, a badass thing to say God will give you blood to drink uh, <sighs> okay so as the trials heated up People who opposed the trials were also raising suspicions, right? Like these people are saying, hey, these trials are getting out of control. Who's going to say that? Witches. Mm -hmm. So one guy named John Proctor was a local tavern owner, and he also owned several farming properties in the area. He was like a big, wealthy guy, big strapping guy with a big loud voice, right? A very like alpha dude in the community. Yeah. And... He openly just straight up said the trials were a total sham. 
And after that, quickly, he was accused of being a wizard, which is a male witch, Mm -hmm. along with his pregnant wife and most of his family. Damn. His properties and wealth were seized by the village authorities after he was arrested, and that left the rest of his children just totally destitute. So Proctor in jail, he stood his ground, and he continued to say these girls are lying these people are lying this is a scam and it's fake yeah can you just imagine just being like like that like in comedy terms he's like the straight man yeah where he's like clearly those little girls are lying look at them yeah and everybody's like you are a wizard dude <laughs> so john proctor is in jail right for months with his entire family on the day that the village executed Rebecca Nurse on mm-hmm. July 19th. Mm-hmm. So he sees that and he's like, sees the writing on the wall. Yeah. If they're gonna execute Rebecca Nurse, they're gonna execute every person in this jail, yeah. right? So four days after that execution, he writes a letter to like a commission of clergy in Boston asking for the trial to be moved to Boston or to have new judges assigned to the court because everything going on in Salem Village was completely nuts, right? Mm -hmm. He also sent that along with a petition to stop the trials that was signed by over 30 members of the village. So the Boston clergy received the letter and they took John Proctor's letter into consideration. They had a secret meeting and they came out and made a statement saying basically that, hey guys, This is what we think. Spectral evidence is real, but the devil might also be taking the form of innocent people. Like the accusers may have seen a a ghost of John Spector acting like a witch or a Mm -hmm. wizard, but that that ghost might have actually been the devil, right? Yeah. Yeah, casting the blame on innocent people. Right. And this is a big revelation for witch hunters, right? It should be, right? (laughs) Yeah. But that didn't help John Proctor. Mm. John Proctor was tried on August 5th, convicted and executed on Gallows Hill on August 19th. His wife, Elizabeth, was also convicted, but she was granted a stay of execution until she gave birth. She gave birth in prison that winter and remained there until she was pardoned by the governor the next year in May of 1693. So she spent like an entire year in prison. But her and her baby survived. Yeah, but a lot of people didn't. Yeah, yeah. And they had no money after that. They were totally destitute. Yeah. Were there, are are there other men that get Mm -hmm. So there's another man Uh of note who was also executed on August 19th. Mm -hmm. So this was Salem's ex-minister. So this is a a minister they used to have named George Burroughs. So Burroughs was accused of being the ringleader of all of the witches. And historically, he's thought to have been a scapegoat for the failed frontier wars against the Wabanakis tribe a few years earlier in Maine. Mm -hmm. So... You know, you have to remember while all this stuff is going on, there's all these like frontier battles happening for people trying to push, you know, people off their tribal lands. Yeah, right. I mean, they're, these are the, you know, these are colonies, which means they're colonizers. Right, it's right. Like the so beginning of all of that. So these, you know, fights and wars are happening like yeah. 50, 70 miles from these settlements. I mean, they're very close. Yeah. So, so they had lost a bunch and they blamed this guy. Yeah. So basically. And it's also kind of thought that the Salem witch trials could have in part been motivated by 
placing like local military failings on the devil rather than themselves. Right. Yeah. So this idea like that, it's also something to help band the people together in the face of these continuous frontier wars failings. I mean, that makes some sense to me looking back at it with my current set of, you know, dispositions or prejudices or whatever. Right. I mean, these are just theories, but that's just one one idea. It rings a little true. So, Basically, George Burroughs had been preaching in what is now Portland, Maine in 1676, you know, maybe 20, you know, 15 years before the um, Salem Witch Trials. Mm -hmm. And the settlement was attacked by the Wabanaki's tribe. So Burroughs ends up like a bunch of people die. It's really, you know, it's a massacre. But he ends up escaping to a nearby island and he survives. So then he moves to Salem Village to take up a job preaching in this, I don't know, safer settlement. Mm -hmm. But yet again, the villagers didn't like him and they stopped paying his salary. (laughs) So about two years later. People did not like the wrong priest, man. (laughs) So about two years later, they stopped paying his salary and in particular, Burroughs has this huge falling out with the Putnams. Mm-hmm. You know, that was like the main people. So they have this huge public beef and he leaves Salem in a huff. And George Burroughs returns again to his original settlement in Maine and was driven out yet again by the Wabanakis. He finally ended up settling in nearby Wells, Maine. So just a different area where he could settle down. Mm-hmm. So he preached in Wells, Maine for nine years when he was abruptly snatched in the middle of dinner from his home and hauled back to Salem on May 4th, 1692 to stand trial for witchcraft. So the the Putnams are just doing this. Like the Putnam clan. Like this guy didn't even live in Massachusetts. No, it's like that Game of Thrones thing when the people in the robes are, you know, just calling everyone sinners or whatever. Yeah. So they they went all the way out to another area, snatched him up, and dragged him all the way back. So his trial was on August 5th, and there he was, accused of using his witch powers to help the Wabanaki's tribe in overtaking his original settlement around what the Portland main area is right now. Mm Mm-hmm. He was also accused of like various other crazy shit, like a whopping 30 people accused Burroughs of witchcraft and with John Putnam's daughter's friends being the central accusers with testimony like, oh, he snatched me up and flew me to a mountaintop and tried to force me to sign this devil's book and I refused and he said he would throw me on a pitchfork and another girl came forward and said he could run faster than a horse and he's a devil, right? In the end, Burroughs was sentenced to hang on August 19th, along with John Proctor, two other men, and one woman. Mm -hmm. On the gallows, Burroughs maintained his innocence and perfectly recited the Lord's Prayer, which is supposed to be impossible for witches and wizards to do. So he stood up there and he says, I'm innocent. And then he recites this with all this feeling, the Lord's Prayer. So the crowd witnesses this. And they start to rumble, right? And they start to kind of turn on the proceedings and demand a pardon for Burroughs. They're like, look, he's not a wizard. He can't be. There's no way he can be a wizard. But the presiding judges proceeded with the hanging anyway. And after he was dead, 
Cotton Mather himself came forward afterwards to tell this doubting crowd of people that Burroughs had his day in court. He had a fair trial and that he needed to be hung. He just said, it is what it is. You can't doubt it now. You guys all came and testified against him. God damn. That's cold blooded. Can I ask you a question? What's up with this devil's book? We've heard this a couple times. Like they Is it like signing your soul away or I something? I think so. I think that that's what it is. Like uh-huh. That's the literal words that people are using are... He forced me to write in his book. The devil forced me to write in his book. I think it's just kind of agreeing that you'll do the devil's work. Once you mm-hmm. sign it, then you're like, it's like, you know. It's uh, like a contract. Ursula, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And it's a Little Mermaid. Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Disappears into like a fiery like sparkle or something. Yeah, yeah. Mm. There was another man also, this man named Giles Corey. He was another dissenter, just like John Proctor. And he was one of the last to be killed. So he was around 80 something years old and he was accused along with his wife of witchcraft. So Giles Corey had this really prosperous farm and he was also a member of the church. So it was another group of people in good standing with the community. And Putnam Jr. accused him of coming to her as a ghost and attempting to force her into writing in his devil's book, right? Mm-hmm. Now, his accusation, the accusation against him, is thought to be connected to his family's alliance with the other major Salem clan, the Porters. So, Giles Corey's whole family was on the Porter side, not the Putnam side. Obviously, right. Right. So he was accused and arrested in April and then remained in jail for five months. Now, Giles Corey thought the trials were a sham, but he learned a lesson from watching John Proctor, who also, just for the record, mm-hmm. he and John Proctor had just like totally unrelated beef. Like yeah. those guys were like, they got into a fight because John Proctor thought that Giles Corey burned down his barn. And it turns out his son had burned down his barn. So <laughs> they had this like big public fight. It about sounds it. like no one is really friends. No, they're all fighting. Right. Yeah. I just thought that was kind of funny. But yeah. he learned this lesson from watching John Proctor's thing. Mm-hmm. And he realized, you know, if I'm convicted, the state's going to get my farm. And he looks around and sees the writing on the wall. And it's like, there's no way I'm not going to be convicted. So he decided to refuse to participate in the trial in the hopes that after his death, his family would be able to keep the farm. And so. Wait, I don't understand the logic there. Basically, there's a punishment for not participating in the trial. Uh And that punishment is being pressed to death. So he knew if he got convicted by this court, then they would take his property and uh like seize it and then like make it an asset of the state but if he just doesn't show up if he refuses to participate in the trial they'll kill him but his family gets to keep the farm you said pressed to death yes so on september 19th giles Corey, 80 something year old dude so was stripped naked in front of the entire village forced to lie on the ground a board was put on his chest and then men took turns putting giant rocks on the board until he was crushed to death two days later. And they're blaming other people of doing the devil's work? I know, I know. Muriel. What? Also, I mean, I'm really sad that that guy died. Did it work? Did his family get to keep the land? Yeah, as far as I read, it did work. Isn't the obvious lesson just say the Lord's Prayer? 
No, that guy got killed too. But but he did it after he was convicted in trial. It seems like if you go to trial and you say, look, I'll do it right now, right here. And they're like, well, I guess we can't convict him. You'll do it. And then the girls will start running around and screaming. And they'll be like, okay, well, you're a witch. You know, I mean, like they, they there's no, there's no real answer to this. I know we yeah, want there no, to be. Yeah, I know that that's right. Right? Yeah, no, I know that that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a good loophole. I like that. Yeah. I um, would just be out here having convulsions and anytime a lawyer talked to me or the judge and I would just be like, I had a, I saw you in my dream. You try to make me sign your book. Yeah. That's you know what, what I, I think that that might have been a little bit more effective. <sighs> so mm-hmm. Giles Corey is crushed to death. And then the next day on September 22nd, eight people, including Giles Corey's wife, Martha, were hung for practicing witchcraft. Jesus Christ. Those eight people were the last of the victims to be executed in the Salem witch trials. So by that fall, after they had publicly pressed Giles Corey to death, people were finally looking around at each other and being like, OMG, what did we just do? Also, hold on. His wife got hung? So she did participate in the in a trial. Yeah. She she didn't she did. Mm. She didn't want to get pressed yet, I guess. I don't yeah, know. I can imagine. So everybody's looking around. There are doubts. Increase Mather enters the scene. Okay. So Increase Mather is Cotton Mather's father. And he's been hearing about all of this crazy stuff going down in Salem Village. And also he started hearing rumors that his own wife was about to be accused of being a witch. Mm. So Increase Mather basically wrote out several arguments calling for the banning of spectral evidence and trials. And he never publicly denounced the Salem witch trials, but he was definitely an advocate for ending the practice of allowing spectral evidence right when it was about to affect his family. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder when Increase stopped being a name. It's a pretty great name. Deliverance, too. Yeah. Eventually, Governor Phipps moved to exclude spectral evidence and touching tests from all legal proceedings in the trials of future witches. He also dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminer. Mm-hmm. With these changes, three witches were pardoned, 28 of the remaining 33 witches in prison were acquitted. And in May of 1693, Phipps released all accused and convicted witches, regardless of whatever evidence, from prison. This included four-year-old Dorcas, who, according to her dad, basically was non-functioning for the rest of her life. Yeah. And Tituba, who was resold into slavery. (sighs) At the end of the... It's It's just a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. At the end of the whole thing, uh-huh. between 150 and 200 people had been arrested and imprisoned on witchcraft charges. And at least four and up to 13 people died in jail. 19 people total were convicted and hung. Giles Corey was pressed to death and two dogs were killed for being suspected witch accomplices. Damn. How'd they kill the dogs? Shooting. Thanks for that. Sorry, I asked. After, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I don't know why you asked you. After the re- <laughs> hanging, I don't know. I guess, I guess maybe that is a good question. Oh, so you don't know. You just said No, that. no. It was shooting. But oh. I was like, <laughs> okay. oh, I guess there would be other ways to do it. Okay. Uh-huh. After the release of the final group of witches, 
everyone started feeling hella bad. One of the judges from the panel, this man named Samuel Seawall, issued a public apology along with several jurors. Um, and basically, his public apologies, the ones that I read basically went like, the devil made me do it. It's of like, course the devil made me do it. I was influenced by the yeah. devil. I regret my actions. Yeah. The devil made me do it. Yeah. And Putnam Jr. in 1706, like, I don't know, what what is that, like 10 years later? Mm-hmm. 12 years later. I don't know. I'm not not following the numbers that close. Okay. So 14 years later in 1706 and Putnam Jr. actually did make a public apology. She, she said she made it all up. She basically said the devil made her make it up. <laughs> so there was a little bit. Oh, so of- she really was haunted. <laughs> I was haunted. It just wasn't by any of the people that I made a huge deal out of, you know, blaming. I mean, nothing happened to her, right? Reverend Samuel, meaning like she didn't have any consequences. Right. Reverend Samuel Paris, the reverend at the heart of all of this thing, he conceded a few small things like mistakes that he made, but mostly he just passed the buck. He didn't really even say the devil made me do it. He also doubled down and refused to resign as the minister of the Salem Village Church. I thought they weren't paying him anymore. He just wouldn't He's leave. He's doing it anyways. Yeah, so, like, so I can get my own firewood. It took him a while to get him out. Uh-huh. Uh, for his part, Governor Phipps placed most of the blame on this runaway trial on Chief Justice William Stoughton, right? Who he appointed and mm-hmm. had no legal experience. Yeah. But he blamed that dude for most of the insanity. Chief Justice Stoughton doubled down also. He didn't apologize. Instead, he said Phipps was ridiculous to interfere right as he was about to clear the land of witches. Oh, so he really thought he was doing it right. And that guy became the next governor of Massachusetts. (laughs) (laughs) Man, there you go, Iman, for you and me. So is there any like modern day speculation about what might have caused kids to contort and vomit and have seizures back in the day? There is. I'm Uh glad you asked that question. So there is one theory. See, I'm not just bits, okay? I'm not just magnificent, golden, hilarious bits. In 1976, this woman named Linda Caporial, Mm -hmm. um, she was like a doctor, she published this article for Science Magazine and basically she said there's a lot of evidence to support that Betty Paris, the original nine-year-old girl, Mm -hmm. had a thing called ergotism. So basically ergot or ergot, E-R-G-O-T, is this fungus that grows on the grains of rye when Mm -hmm. they're stored in like a moist environment. Yeah. And so they talk about basically the spring, the harvest that happened before that winter that like it was, they were really ripe conditions for developing this fungus and the Mm. fungus, if you eat it like in porridge, which is what most settlers were eating in the morning. And they're putting rye in cake. I mean, who's ever heard of a rye cake? They're making (laughs) rye cake. They're eating rye in everything. Yeah, right. They're using a lot of rye, Yeah, right? So they're using rye in all their baked goods. They're also using it in porridges that they grind up and eat every day, right? So Mm. it's it's a really common grain. And basically, rye-induced ergotism causes severe convulsions, muscle spasms, delusions, hallucinations, the sensation of crawling under the skin, 
And in really extreme cases, it can cause gangrene in some of your limbs. Damn. Well, yeah. So it's like it's probably pretty fair that that's what was going on. Lysergic acid uh-huh. is like what is present in yeah. this fungus. And that's like how, what you use to synthesize LSD. Hell yeah. But so, I, I wonder if that first lady, the first lady who got uh, charged of it, the yeah. Irish lady, I wonder if she was poisoning the kids. I know. I had the same thought. I knew I was that like, shit. I, I wonder if that, because like, people be poisoning people. Yeah. Then. Yeah. But no, we're literally trying to find cases where poison is not involved in the murder of people for this <laughs> podcast. We're like, is there anything where someone just wasn't poisoned? It's like all poison. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of a theory. Some people have. Mm-hmm like dismissed it but i mean the symptoms fit really well so even if it wasn't uh-huh. like they kind of think it could have been a combination of like betty paris actually being ill mm-hmm. and other girls in the town like ann putnam jr just being bored it yeah it's like the tiktok winter. thing yeah. yeah and like then this kind of hysterical mm-hmm. spread across the community sure of just people kind of starting to see just a mass hysteria event. And so, well, yeah. yeah. Where did the idea of being burned at the stake come from if it's not the Salem witch trials? I think that happened in, um, I don't know. Like don't way know, older than that? Yeah, I think yeah. that was like a really old school. Same thing. thing with the like, throw them in the water with rocks around their neck or whatever. And if see, they if they sink, then they were humans, but now they're dead. Right, but, but if they float, then they're a witch. Yeah, because witches are made out of wood or something. I mean, I think I got that from... I feel like that we got that from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but that might be true. I am going to tell you something like yeah. straight up. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this will be a really fun, quick kind of historical thing to talk about. Yeah. And it's actually just such a, like a intense, complicated story. Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. So I did not, I mean, I could have like gone and tried to figure out like the history of how we killed witches. <laughs> I'm sure we burned them at the stake and did all kinds of horrible things to women. But yeah. I think that that, all that stuff is, that did not happen in the colonies. It was not the same thing. They weren't burning anyone. I think mm-hmm. that they were like this really specific way you could burn someone, but like you had to have done all these steps. Like that was not a punishment that they doled out. Um, the Puritans were anti-burning at the stake. Just as a quick little uh, endorsement for something that we're not associated with in any way. Muriel and I did go see the most amazing film. It's a foreign film called you won't be alone and it's about witches and I'll just leave it at that. It should be out in, on streaming services pretty soon. It was just like in LA on on the big screen for like, I think one weekend and Miriam and I just randomly saw it. And the movie is horrifying. It's frightening. It's incredibly original and brilliant and also moving and beautiful. And this whole allegory for life, it is one of the best movies we've seen in so long. It takes place in like ancient Macedonia and it's fucking amazing. So if you get a chance and you're into witches, please, please, please watch the movie. You won't be alone because it's, (laughs) It's. I'm like getting goosebumps thinking about how good it was. It was a very. And th- those witches do a things a lot more brutal than pinching. I love how they were like they pinched me. Like that was the craziest thing that a little kid's imagination could come up with. I know. Well, and that's another thing that this um, uh, ergotism does. This disease is it gives uh, you like skin crawling, yeah. like pins and needle sensation. Yeah, man. So 
I don't know. I mean, people say nobody knows what happened, but it, it sounds like it could have happened. And if it could have happened, that's pretty wild. Well, Muriel, I'm going to give you permission to not list any of your resources if you feel like this one was just more work than you really signed up for. No, and it was I too can, much I mean, stuff. I, I, I used the two main things that uh-huh. I used were there's actually a really great Wikipedia article about this. So there's a professor, I believe he's a law professor for the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Uh His name is Douglas O. Linder, and he has this awesome website called Famous American Trials. And he's just kind of, his hobby is to go through and just like fully document all these famous American trials. And if you're into this story, there's a lot more like complicated nuances, but there's a lot of really cool stuff on here. He Mm -hmm. has tons of like primary documents and cool ideas and just like the chronology of the event and all that kind of stuff. So his uh, website is really cool. I think you can find it at web uh, webarchives.com. It's been archived. It's not live anymore, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's pretty easy to find. Just look that guy up. <sighs> That's it, baby. All right. We did it, Muriel. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for your participation. That was great. And now I think I'm going to edit this, but I think you get to kind of like take the rest of the day off kind of and take it a little bit easy. I'm, I am going to do that. Okay, good. You've earned it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the writing, research, and hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, and post-production, and this episode was recorded right here in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Uh, find us on social media at Muriel's Murders. We put out some fun art and we try to follow you back and stay in contact with you. Our DMs are open. You can email us at murielsmurders at gmail.com. Plus, we have a voicemail. So if you want to leave us, uh, you know, a three minute maximum message, uh, that phone number will be in the show notes of this episode. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can rate us there as well. And you can add this episode to like, a playlist of podcasts you think your friends should tune in to. Yeah, and then you should like give your friends that playlist and be like, oh my God, Muriel's Murders <laughs> is on there. Don't make fun of me. Okay, I'm making fun of us, let's be honest. And I'm the thirsty one who like asks you to say that every damn episode. Uh, our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. That's it. Bye. wanted to hear the story of the time that Melissa Fumero from Brooklyn Nine-Nine's kid had a two-hour long tantrum that drove generations of their family to weep? Or maybe the story of SNL's Bobby Moynihan's kid who found random pizza in a playground sandbox and ate it. If so, you should check out Why Mommy Drinks, a weekly comedy podcast where I, Betsy Stover, talk to interesting people like Richard Jefferson from the NBA or Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend about a time that their kids broke them down into a shell of their former selves or maybe even drove them to drink, but in a fun way. If you have kids, this show will make you feel less alone. And if you don't have kids, you're going to be so glad you don't have kids. Listen on Campfire Media, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. My mommy drinks. Campfire.